0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am so excited about today's episode because this last August 2019, I traveled to Dominican Republic into Haiti to witness the work of Plant With Purpose. And over the years, I've been able to travel to many developing nations to see incredible work being done. And I can tell you that Plant With Purpose now tops my list. And so with me today are Corbin Small and Scott Sabin. Corbin serves as Plant With Purpose's fundraising and outreach arm based out of Denver, Colorado, and he focuses on building partnerships throughout Colorado and surrounding states. He has been with Plant With Purpose since 2009. Scott has served as the executive director of Plant With Purpose since 1995, and in that time, they have grown from a single program in one country to include a staff of hundreds of foresters, agronomists, pastors, and facilitators in eight countries— who have empowered farmers in hundreds of communities to plant over 30 million trees and dramatically reduce poverty in their communities. He is the author of Tending to Eden and is an advocate for reforestation as a key component of sustainable community development around the world. Scott and Corbin, welcome to the Changing Faith
1: Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you, Michael.
0: So as we begin, um, why don't you both just tell us a little bit about yourselves, a little bit about your story.
1: I'm going to let Corbin go first.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much, Michael, for having us. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, be back with you after our trip. Yeah. So I am based in Denver, Colorado, as you said. I've been here for about eight years and uh, moved from San Diego, where the organization is based, and where I went to school at Point Loma Nazarene University and um, had a business education there. I uh, really loved being in San Diego, but I Ultimately, traded the ocean for the beautiful mountains in the Rockies, and uh, and experiencing seasons for the first time in my life.
0: <laughs> Not really, though. Denver's like fall and spring are more of an identity crisis between seasons. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well but well, growing up
2: in Arizona and then moving to San Diego, this was like the most gradual step towards experiencing seasons. That, that I is true. Jidden. Yes. So, a um, little bit about me. Um, you know, my primary vehicle is a bicycle. I love to ride bikes, and Denver's a bit of a sprawl, uh, but we've got some really great bike paths uh, along our rivers. And so that is how I get around. Um, I've been married for five years. Um, we have a two year old son, and uh, my wife and I are foster parents i awesome. been at Plant With Purpose now for uh, for a decade, which is a bit strange to say. But uh, in March, I celebrated <laughs> my 10th year.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, one of the things that I said to you when we traveled together was how amazed I was that an organization like Plant With Purpose has so many staff members with such um, so much longevity. Because so often in, in the world of uh, NGOs, and in the worlds of community development it seems like there's often really high turnover which says a lot about your the organization in a positive sense. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself. Do you ride a bike or
1: <laughs> Very rarely. When I get uh, when I get the time sailing is my my big outlet. Ah. But, uh Yeah, I'm San Diego uh, raised, lived here my whole life. I actually right out of college, served for seven years in the Navy as a a ship driver, and uh, had thoughts of going to work uh, for the State Department. And uh, so I I went to graduate school at night my last couple years in the Navy. In order to finish that, I needed a a foreign language. Um, And so right after I got out of the Navy, literally two days later, I went to Guatemala for an immersion Spanish program and god changed the whole course of my life during that summer Um, Mm. i think it was really the first time that my eyes were opened to extreme poverty and injustice dramatic injustice Mm. but the most memorable thing about that summer for me was people living their faith in a risky way in a way i had never experienced Mm. growing up in southern california and um, still had a, a year of school to, to go. So I came back to San Diego, but started volunteering on the side. And that was uh, what, 26, 27 years ago. I've been at Plant with Purpose ever since. Um, and as you mentioned, the director since 95. So,
0: wow. yeah, That's incredible. And what was it that you saw in Guatemala that you felt was so... Um, so life altering? What were some of those experiences?
1: Well, things like, you know, visiting the city dump, and I know that many of your listeners have have experienced similar things. But visiting the city dump and realizing that there are children living there amidst the smoke and, and, and the hell, and then realizing that there were people choosing to live there in order to do ministry. And in order and Hmm. I met people, the civil war was still going on at that time. And I met people who literally were risking their lives to minister to people on both sides of that conflict. And, um, I just, I just came came home thinking, wow, the world is a lot scarier and a lot more exciting than I ever imagined. Um, And incidentally, that that ultimately led me to to meeting my wife, who during that same time frame was working in Somalia with World Vision. And um, when I uh, when I heard about this, again, this American woman who who put everything aside to go live in a war zone in Somalia as a volunteer. Wow. I want to meet this person. (laughs) So anyway, that's amazing. That's how we met.
0: Well, tell us tell us a bit about Plant with Purpose and, and what is the organization all about. Corbin, yeah, I was
2: gonna on? I was gonna jump in. Um, so, <clears throat> I think it's helpful um, to actually go back to the the founding briefly, um, because I think the short answer to that is is root causes to poverty. Um, seeking out the root causes and addressing those. Uh, So in 1979, August of 79, there was a uh, hurricane that was the first of the season to come through the Caribbean, and uh, it hit the the small island of Dominica pretty hard, and then it escalated to a Category 5, 150 to 175-mile-an-hour winds before it hit Santa Domingo, and the Dominican Republic dead on. Uh, it was mm-hmm. really, really devastating. Uh, it killed over 200 people, and it just decimated the eastern uh, side of the island. And so <clears throat> in the midst of that, there was a lot of uh, media attention here in the United States around the devastation that, that the eastern half of the island had seen. And it raised awareness about uh, a place that maybe some people had never been to um, and then some needs that existed there. And so some folks from a church in San Diego were doing some short-term mission trips, distributing food aid in an urban slum in Santo Domingo, which is the capital of the Dominican Republic. And as they as they continued to do that work, they started to get to know some of the families in the slums. And they were asking the question, "What is it what is it that you do? What is your vocation?" And overwhelmingly discovering this response from from people that that they were farmers. And there mm. was just this <clears throat> this cognitive dissonance for the founder of Plant with Purpose, um, as they were going to volunteer now years after the the hurricane, and they were distributing food aid to farmers. And they said, "Well, why are you farm? Why are you, as a farmer, why are you in these slums?" <clears throat> and realizing that environmental degradation, soil loss, decreasing crop yields, and and with it decreasing incomes, had forced families to move from the rural countryside into these urban slums to look for economic opportunities. And so, the founder decided to think, you know, what what is this? What's a way that we can look? both literally and figuratively upstream at the source of this poverty that, that they were experiencing in the slums of Santo Domingo. And so Plant With Purpose was founded out of that. How do we, we go um, up into the mountains, into the rural countryside, and teach sustainable agriculture through, uh, through local agronomists that we could hire to um, help families mitigate soil loss, uh, start to restore their land uh, and provide opportunities for their future. And I'd say <clears throat> really quickly, we realized that every, every single smallholder farmer in the rural countryside, they're also a business owner. And one of the other big challenges that we experienced was it's really hard for, um, for a business owner to get access to capital in mm. the rural countryside. It's it's available, but it's extremely expensive and it's often predatory. And so Plant With Purpose, kind of taking this sustainable agriculture approach and environmental restoration approach, add in a, added in a second component of our work, which was in uh, economic empowerment and access to financial tools. Uh, the group of folks that were doing this work uh, really valued uh, local leadership so from the from the beginning we've always hired local staff in the countries that we're working in um, it's always been focused around uh, a Christian mission and a calling to love God and love our neighbors um, but quickly we also realized we could we could do a better job of integrating um, the spiritual renewal component of our work and so the three-legged stool of plant with purpose today is really around, environmental restoration, economic development, and spiritual renewal. And so we do that through partnership with churches and and curriculums that really undergird um, the the beautiful ways that, that the Bible talks about caring for creation, God placing Adam and Eve into the garden and the creation story and inviting them to tend and to keep it. Um, so I think if I was to summarize the the work that we're doing and maybe some of the values that we hold is, you know, we really, really care deeply about partnership with people. We care about mm. addressing root causes, um, and maybe, maybe another. As I talk about people, it's it's paying attention to the unlikely partners um, in the story. Um, we work with rural subsistence level farmers that are often the most overlooked disenfranchised removed from society people on the planet and yet what we see in each of those individuals is the image of god unique talents skills and abilities that that they can use to transform their communities and so it's truly believing in the imago dei of our brothers and sisters
0: and when I hear you talk about the, the three-legged stool, the three approaches, the environment, economic, and spiritual, there there are some who might be listening who think, like, is, is this like a bait and switch where you get people into your program only so you can proselytize them? What, is, what does that look like, that spiritual renewal piece? Because I feel like w- we'll talk a little bit more about the environmental and the economic piece, but what does the spiritual renewal piece look like uh, on the ground in the places where you are working?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it 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 really does come back to that um, unlikely partners. You know, if we if we use Haiti as an example, um, you know, if you ask people what they know about Haiti, it's typically two things. It's it's that it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and Mm -hmm. that it uh, from a satellite you can see the border because of the the deforestation in Haiti compared to the Dominican Republic, and. And that's, it's unfortunate, while the, cha- while the challenges are real, it's unfortunate that we choose to define a country by what it lacks uh, mm. instead of what it has. And, and so when it comes to spiritual renewal, if, if we have a marred, you know, I guess a broken relationship of our view of our brothers and sisters in Haiti and we're defining them by what they don't have, that is poverty, uh, in the same way, yeah. for a subsistence-level farmer who toils day in and day out and uh, works so hard, and yet the economic compensation that they receive for their work is is nothing, absolutely nothing, in Haiti. Mm-hmm. That's that's a message that the world is is telling you that you're not worth much and your work is not valuable, and so that can can lead to a marred self-image. Or a belief that you don't have something to offer. Um, certainly, Haiti's proximity to the United States and the number of organizations and people who've gone with good intentions to try to to fix and to help—that's also exacerbated this this belief that um, belief from us, from the United States, that that our brothers and sisters in Haiti don't have something to offer and. And even a belief locally that um, that the resources to change the community and to, to provide opportunity for the future have to come externally. And so, from a spiritual renewal perspective, it's just that that believing and trying to restore that s- self-image and the relationship with God. something that that more resembles um how jesus talks about us and 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 so that's integrated into our are the curriculums as i mentioned you know we use curriculums that talk about um just the inherent beauty and value of being a farmer um economically you know talk talking about um how to steward steward find our finances in a way that that brings glory to God. Partnering with local churches in the community, Plant With Purpose won't stay in a community forever. Uh, we believe that the local church is a critical part of transformation and community development. And oftentimes you'll find churches that, this is not just in Haiti or in Dominican Republic, churches that end up inwardly focused and, and overly concerned about care of its own church body. And if we can work with churches to motivate them back to the the basics of loving God and loving our neighbors, churches can become this incredible agent of change in communities. And we really, truly believe um, that churches have a role to play, and that the members yes. of those churches have a role to play.
1: If I could... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. I just was wanted to add a couple of things. Uh, you mentioned that you know people would think that this is a bait and switch. Um, usually the the label that gets put on us instead is more you guys are just social gospel um, which is, which is <laughs> because we have to have labels. Exactly. but um, one of the most amazing things to me has been to see how when people that discover, the, their identity in Christ and the fact that they have been given purpose and vocation, mm. it changes so much. And I'll just share a quick story with you. I was in, um, in a fairly remote uh, village in, uh, Eastern Congo in democratic Republic of Congo a couple years ago. And we had been, um, hiking between villages where we work. And the guy who'd spent most of the day with me, I found out that he'd been a, been basically a local warlord, um, a guerrilla fighter, and so I talked to our um, our director, and I said, "Can can I interview him? Would you?" You know. So we sat down and we had a, a conversation, and and you may be aware that in in a lot of East Africa, and certainly in Eastern Congo, the women do the bulk of the work, and and that was yeah. one of the first things he said. He said, "You know, men here didn't do much. We'd sit around and play cards." And then your pastor came and started talking about work being a gift from God. And I realized I have something I can contribute. And I thought maybe if I help my wife on the farm together, we could do something really great. Oh, that's awesome. And then he goes on to talk about uh, disbanding the militia and, um, you know, fighting being ultimately destructive. And me, you know, I come from that evangelical background. So I said, so, so like what happened here? Did you become a Christian? He gives me this funny look. He says, no, I've always been a Christian. I just never knew it applied to anything besides Sunday before. Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. It, it was fascinating to hear that and hear his, his whole change in demeanor because he discovered that God had given him purpose. Yeah. And before that, especially in some of the countries where we've worked with refugees or former child soldiers, there's an attitude of, of what's it all for anyway? You know, I've been on relief aid, maybe why work and discovering God, gives you a purpose and gives you talents and, and calls you to use those talents, um, is liberating in a way that I couldn't have imagined even five years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you point out something that, um, that's essential is that the church is at her best when we're a healing agent in our world and in our culture, not existing as a, the moral police. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I just was in Vietnam um, with a potential ministry partner of ours at Denver Community Church and spoke with pastors who had experienced persecution at the hands of the government. And when they began getting involved with a clean water initiative – the Government relented and said well you can you can kind of start doing what you're doing because you're making people feel better yeah um, and so it's amazing what happens when I would say when the Church actually becomes the thing that it's intended to be, which is a healing presence in our world. so I love that you guys are doing that and and scott you you talk about one of the central ways to do that. Uh, you hold that the idea of reforestation is central to community development around the world. Why is that, and can you help us even understand like what is reforestation? What does that look like uh, in practical terms?
1: Yeah, well, and, and this is something that took me years to grasp. So I started, I already shared with you, I started volunteering back in the early 90s. I didn't really get this part of our mission. I was really fired up about alleviating poverty and about uh, partnering with the least of these. The whole reforestation thing seemed to me to be a an odd sideshow, <laughs> until I started seeing the hillsides that people were trying to farm in places like Haiti or Dominican Republic, and realizing that for those people, their primary assets are their soil, their topsoil, and their water resources, whatever rain falls on that. And then learning the interrelationship between that and what had happened to the forests. When the forests removed, that topsoil washes away many, many times faster, so they're, one of their primary assets is gone, and the rain never slows down. It doesn't infiltrate the soil. Nothing breaks the fall of the rain. Nothing um, allows it to infiltrate the, the soil or recharge the aquifer, and so wells dry up, and land, land becomes a desert. And so when I looked at all these people trying to farm desert hillsides, I thought, oh mm. my goodness, and then realized deforestation was a part of the problem, that rivers and streams had dried up, wells were drying up. And then the exciting thing was realizing that that process is reversible by incorporating trees back into farms and reforesting watersheds. We've seen rivers and streams renewed and come to life again, which is a, an amazing illustration of the gospel. Yeah. Um, so, what does reforestation look like? Part of what we do is we um, incorporate trees into farming. Um, you know, switching from from annual row crops to perennials, and and um, and think about it, a forest grows on a hillside. So, yeah, you know, fruit trees and multi-purpose trees, and then in in areas that are, are shared, the commons as we refer to it, actually doing reforestation, planting trees, or practicing something called farmer-managed natural regeneration, which is allowing the forest to come back. And, and as a result, we've seen rivers and streams come back, we've seen watersheds start to flourish, um, again, literally and figuratively, we've seen them turn green. And um, that has been a huge awakening for me, Another piece of it has been realizing that my initial conception, once I started to get reforestation, my initial conception was still very utilitarian. You know, somebody asked me once, why do you plant trees? Well, because the people need the trees. But over the course of time, I've come to learn that God cares about creation for its own sake. Um, God loves what was created. And you see that in... You know, you see that in Job, where God responds to Job by talking about this intimate and gentle and loving relationship with the creatures and the and the environment, the ecosystems, um, which speaks of a relationship that isn't all about us. It's not all about human beings. It's, it's about other things as well. Yeah. And... Um, and that has really changed my attitude. It, creation has inherent value. And part of the purpose we, we've been given and part of the purpose that the people we work with, people like the, the warlord in, in Congo, can have is restoring God's creation.
0: Yeah. And so what does it look like? Um, take us through the process of identifying communities um, it, it, seeing some of these watersheds, some of these hillsides that have been deforested, what is the process for you from start to finish? Corbin, you had mentioned that you, you don't stay there um, forever, that there's a plan to at some point leave the community once they've, um, at, at a certain point. So what does that look like for for you guys? Uh, how long are you with them? What are some of the best practices that you bring to those communities?
1: Well, um, I'll I'll start. One of the things we do just maybe one of the more difficult things is identifying where because another thing I learned was this need was not was not unique to the Dominican Republic or to Haiti, but really exists throughout the world, throughout the tropics for sure. um, There's nearly a billion subsistence farmers. Um, Deforestation is a massive problem throughout. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, throughout Southeast Asia, um, the Caribbean. Um, so the, um, so, in other words, there's no limit to places we could start. Um, we've established hmm. a, a matrix of needs to, to help narrow that down. What countries have needs, spiritual needs, economic needs, Um, environmental needs where deforestation is related to poverty because that's really our specialty and then we use a lot of uh, GIS tools things like poverty mapping um, basically geographical information systems to narrow down where within the country are the neediest places because it's not Mm -hmm. always obvious you know we started working in places in the Dominican Republic 25 years ago that looked needy to us but Maybe they were just more accessible than places that are even needier but are farther farther off the grid. And so using some of these uh, these now tools that we have today, GIS tools, to actually find out where do they need us the most. And then narrowing it down to a single watershed, starting usually with the local church provides the introduction helps us to have some some credibility um, from the from the start and work with one or two pilot communities we find that beyond that after those first few years it becomes pretty easy because neighbors see what's going on neighbors want to participate and and pretty soon there's more there's more interest in what we're doing than we can actually meet um, Hmm. Our goal is to work with uh, approximately 60% of the of the the families in a watershed, uh, which may have many communities in it, with the hope that there'll be enough spillover effect to benefit everyone. And that's something we've actually been able to measure, is that everybody benefits, not just the direct participants.
0: Yeah, and, and can you explain that? Because when, when we were in um, Dominican Republic, we were in Kanya, which I believe is a region. But Corbin was explaining that the watershed that we were um, we were in and that we were watching work on actually impacts people not only in Dominican Republic but in Haiti um, and because it brings back water to some of the dried dried up riverbeds and dry creeks that you were talking about. So could you explain that a little bit as to what you mean? I can found I, it fascinating.
2: Yeah, Can I jump in on that um, just real quickly because I realized that we're talking about watersheds and often – uh, that's not a familiar term for people. Um, but it is it is the key way that we organize our our programs now is around it's a geographic boundary essentially. and it's it's a basin that water flows into. So it's the ridge lines that surround um, the rivers and streams. And so when you're talking in specific about this watershed named Kanya in the Dominican Republic, Um, We work with about 3,000 farming families in Kanya, and we work there because it's extremely mountainous. There's been a high level of deforestation and soil erosion. The level of economic poverty is really high. And uh, you have Haitians and Dominicans living on that side of of the border who are struggling to provide for their families. On the other side of the border, and uh, we were able to travel across the border on foot, uh, into Haiti, because this is where Denver Community Church is partnering, is in Haiti. And so we wanted to go see how Plant With Purpose's programs worked, not just in the Dominican Republic, but also in Haiti. So we walked across the border and into this uh, adjacent sub-watershed named Cornillon. We worked w- we work with over 2,500 families in this wa- watershed. And the beautiful thing is they're side by side, separated by a geographic boundary or by a geopolitical boundary. But the work that's, excuse me, that's being done there is actually benefiting uh, the most important river in Haiti. So the Artibonite river flows into uh, a dam that provides water for 3.6 million Haitian families. And it's the most important uh, agricultural region in Haiti <clears throat> so you have this work that's taking place miles away from, from this dam and from this uh, more fertile agricultural valley. And the reforestation work that's improving families' incomes, preserving soils, restoring soils, uh, is being done by Haitians and Dominicans at the headwaters of the Artibonite River. And so it's an extremely strategic place for us to work. And uh and it has incredible downstream impacts you know with deforestation you know we understand this living here in colorado when we have forest fires in the summer and then we get rains and snow we end up with uh, a lot of soil erosion and and that fills up our reservoirs with silt and minerals that decreases the productivity of our our dams Uh, if they're hydroelectric that has a negative impact Uh, or it just decreases the lifespan of the dams, um, providing water for so many other people. And so really thinking about root causes and and upstream solutions, this work at the border region between Haitians and Dominicans, who there's a lot of history between, uh, is a really beautiful kind of kingdom of God uh, restoration uh, vision that we're getting to participate in and see God work in and through.
0: Yeah, and I'm struck by the one of the things I was struck by even listening to you guys now is the amount of of science and technology that you've brought to bear into this. Of when we were in Dominican uh, Corbin, you were looking at satellite maps and topography maps to figure out what might be next, and yet at the end of the day, it's also feels like a very simple thing that you're doing. And, and that seems to be the contrast. And one of the things I'm, I was struck by Corbin was when we were on our way to meet uh, a group of farmers on the first day, you, you said to me with a little smile on your face, you're like, by the way, this isn't probably not the kind of farm you're thinking of. Um, so <laughs> can you describe for people as best you can? Mm. And, um, what these farms look like, because you said to me the biggest <laughs> the biggest danger for farmers is falling down the hill. And I was like, "What are you talking about? so mm-hmm. what is what do these things look like um in all of their beauty and in their simplicity?
2: Yeah, no, i I grew up in a suburb of Arizona, uh, really removed from agriculture. but when i when I pictured farming, when I thought of farming, uh, it was really about flat, irrigated fields with big tractors and, and overalls. Uh, <laughs> the overalls, uh, and that is just not the case. I can't speak to the overalls. I guess I haven't seen many overalls as I've visited uh, <laughs> Haiti and Dominican Republic, but it is definitely not the case when it talks about when we're talking about the the size of the pieces of land, the farms that families are farming, and then also the slopes that f- families are farming on. So the the least desirable pieces of land anywhere. Are the ones that aren't flat. That's a pretty natural assumption. But when you think about increasing populations and uh, people living uh, in in rural areas, places like Haiti and Dominican Republic or uh, Northern Mexico, they're very mountainous. And so, um, you know, in Haiti, there's a really common phrase, you know, talking about mountains beyond mountains. And it's just Mm. indicating. It's a mountainous country and symbolically they're talking about, you know, if you climb one mountain, you're guaranteed to find another mountain just beyond it. And so there's, it's just, when we're talking about farms on mountains, I guess the easiest way to, to describe it is think about if you ski uh, or you hike, a blue or a, a black diamond type of slope and those are the least desirable places for a family to have to grow their food. And that is the kind of land that we're working with families to restore. And so you mentioned uh, a farmer named Nivelka. Um, mm-hmm. Nivelka was the, <laughs> the woman who we went to visit on that first day in, in Kanya, the Dominican Republic. And we started you know, at the side of the road. We met her and her um, her her grandson Jaron, uh, which is a beautiful picture of this multi generational uh, impact that's taking place. But she, you know, we followed her to her her piece of land, and as we started walking from the road into her her farm, what it what it really appeared to be was just walking into a forest, walking into mm-hmm. a naturally growing occurring forest uh, where you have. Lots of foliage on the ground, um, you know, at eye level, and then trees that are overhead. And and it really took us hiking past that section of her farm and into, and I say hiking, again, think about we're talking about a farm. We're hiking. Uh, we are not wearing flip-flops. We're wearing our boots. Uh, we're watching where we step because it is. It's steep. Uh, we're hiking yeah. up this hill to a point where... I guess I forgot to mention we uh, stopped by the, the, the nursery that they had been uh, growing seedlings at and we were we'd collected as many seedlings as we could. These are This is work that they were planning to do that they invited us to participate in. And so we're hiking and we're holding these trees and I don't know about you, but I was slipping all around and, and struggling to uh, get up the hillside. but we get to a point on her farm that's steep and it's completely stripped. There's yep. nothing, nothing there, just rocks, um, and this is where we started with our trees, and so we had cedar trees and we had coffee trees that we had brought into her farm, and this is where we brought out the cedar trees because the cedar trees were being planted on this uh, stripped por- portion of the hillside, so that they could grow up, and and ultimately they could she could plant coffee beneath the cedar and so when we talk about farms we're not thinking monoculture and i think that's another maybe important uh, thing to point out biodiversity is such an important thing that plant with purpose um promotes and and has learned so much more about over the years Um, a farmer that has a small plot of land if they just have one crop, it's, it's literally all of their eggs in one basket. If something happens to the market, something happens to the crop, um, that family's livelihood is, is severely impacted. And so on Nivelka's farm, what we had seen in the area that she had restored was that she had probably 15 different, you know, we asked her to identify the different things that she was growing, and she probably had 15 different crops that she was growing uh, and and, in a, and that allows her family to to receive income year round. And so from you know ground level where she may have um, peas or pineapple growing to then um, you know fruit trees and timber trees um, all the way to to hardwoods that honestly she's not going to benefit from. If she's planting mahogany, that's Jaren's. That's Jaren's generation that's going to benefit from that mahogany uh, in 30 years. And so all of these different sources of income. When we talk about farm, it's really about biodiversity, lots of different kinds of trees and crops all working together. And and I was captivated by her vision. You know, not only that she had done a ton of really hard work, but that she was continuing. You know she was, yes. she was restarting this hard process and work on land that, frankly, it looks like the surface of the moon. and And to be able to walk from cool, incredible forest jungle, they call it um, I'm trying to think of the term um, food forest, essentially, um, walking in a cool food forest to then stepping up onto the hillside in the harsh sun. Um, to just see that the restoration from that to the food forest can take place just really gives uh, credit to the resilience of God's creation.
0: Yeah, and and I remember when we were walking up there, I remember going past the tree line, and Mm. it was all limestone rock. And Mm. one of them, to give you an idea for those of you who are listening how steep it is, one of the rocks got kicked loose and just tumbled down the hill, with everyone yelling "Watch out!" Um, until it got into the forest and finally stopped. Was stopped by one of the trees. And one of the things I I loved about that experience with Novelka was that that's not the only time that we saw her. Mm-hmm. We uh, we met her that day. Um, she showed us her coffee plants, which were um, some had been affected, but the newer ones were just. I mean, they looked like grape clusters growing on the the branches. And then she told us about her coffee business that she runs with four other women. And she talked about the VSLA and, and that this is something I would love for you guys to talk about. Um, because it's, it's, again, it's simple. There's a ton of complexity to it, however, and then, but what it's yielding and what it's doing in country uh, has really been amazing. So could you tell talk to us a little about the, uh, the VSLA?
2: Yeah, I definitely, let me, um, let me go quick overview, and then you can ask, ask questions, because it is really simple. Um, and I think even coming back to the question that you asked me earlier about what are some of the organizational values, and I think that this is a great example of one of our key organizational values, and it's that we want to listen and learn from our partners. So for many years, we practiced microfinance, which is, is just helping families that don't have collateral uh, to to access credit and so it's trusting and, and building relationships to help families get access to credit in places that are hard to get credit uh, we were okay we are okay at that um, honestly not super successful it was fine maybe you would say it was okay um, but we discovered not because of our um, brilliant academic um educational backgrounds like here in the United States but because of the brilliance and the ingenuity and the creativity of our our program director Edith Bonzi in Tanzania who um, just discovered a better way you know she went into a community one day and she found out that people were hiding from her because she couldn't they couldn't repay the loans that that we had uh, made to them and so she said this doesn't really make sense you know we're we're teachers and trainers partnering in communities, but at the same time, we have to be loan officers and collectors. And so she found a, a methodology called Village Savings and Loan Associations, and she tried it. And the, the short of it is that it's it's basically taking all of the, the lending out of our hands and putting it into the hands of the community by focusing first on savings so groups of 25 families come together. They learn this really clear-cut methodology, and they, they agree to save some amount of money every single week that they get together, and they save it into a lockbox. This lockbox has three different keys. They elect three different key holders and a fourth person to, to keep the box. And over the course of three months and training from Plant With Purpose, they just save really small amounts of money, like literally 10 cents, 50 cents, a dollar per person. And after three months of doing that, they have enough money in the box to begin lending to one another. And if you're thinking that sounds painfully slow and we have money here in the United States, we should just, we should just fund the, the capital for, for lending and, and microfinance, um, you're right, it is slower. But one of the things that we've learned through this process is it unlo- unlocks this uh, incredible human potential and just a belief that that we all have something to offer. Because in a place that doesn't have uh, a culture of savings, which it can be anywhere, if you can generate a culture of savings and everybody starts contributing and, and saving small amounts of money, you can be surprised at what how that adds up over time. And so maybe at our peak when we were doing microfinance, we were lending $200,000. Today with 35,000 families saving small amounts of money, there is uh, $4.3 million U.S. saved without a single penny infused from Plant With Purpose. It's solely through teaching and training and encouraging families to save small amounts of money. So then they take that money and they invest it in business and agriculture and education for their children. Um, You know, we know that participants of Plant With Purposes programs, they are two and a half times more likely to send their daughters to high school than non-participants. And that's not because we're paying them to send their daughters to school. It's because they're in the economic position now to be able to afford to pay their children's tuition fees and they weren't able to do that in the past. And so that's, that's kind of the, um, that's something that we learned from a program partner that's been rolled out across all of our programs and just been this incredible um, thing that we've learned that is, has really helped transform the, the way that we work.
0: And when you talk about the 4.3 million, can you? One of the things you told me, both in DR and Haiti, was the amount of money Plant with Purpose um, puts in into the country in U.S. dollars compared to how much money is in the country because of the Village Saving and Loan Association. So, can you can you just Mm -hmm. give us some of the comparison and contrast between those two things?
2: I can. Yeah, I really, really briefly, and using. Rough numbers. Our, pro, our our entire program in Haiti costs about eight hundred thousand dollars. It's one of our largest programs. Uh, costs about eight hundred thousand dollars for us to do everything we do with ten thousand three hundred families. Um, in that in that context, there is one point oh five million dollars saved by those ten thousand farming families. Mm. Uh, in addition to that, because we don't work in a place forever, we also know um, that there are there's families who have graduated entirely from our programs who we continue to track progress to see how they're doing. They have an additional $300,000 that is saved and that they are lending to one another and they're earning 22% interest on their savings because they're lending these – $15, $30, $50 loans to one another, and they charge interest. But that interest, instead of coming back to plant with purpose like a traditional microfinance organization would operate, that interest stays in the community. So the bank is wow. owned, operated, and um, carried out within the community. And and so, yeah, there's uh, globally five over $5 million U.S. saved by families we work with and families who've graduated from our programs. And our, our entire organizational budget is, is $5.2 million. So that's,
1: that's incredible. Yeah, pretty exciting. If I can uh, share just one story, and actually this comes from, from the Kanye area um, a number of years ago. I, I, first of all, I, I started as a skeptic when our, our um, director in Tanzania was talking about this system because I thought it would, it would take too long. But uh, I visited a community there in the Hondalaye Kanye area, and uh, they were telling me their story, and you know they were saving a dollar a week, something like that, um, and gradually that grew. They at the end of a the year they usually cash out. They have an opportunity to reinvest if they want, and they said that they got to their their time of cashing out, and they were shocked to realize that they had $4,000. They'd never seen that kind of money before. Hmm. And so they started another cycle, reinvested, but now everybody believed in the system. And so they told me that people stopped gambling so they could save. They stopped drinking so they could save. Anybody who had a little bit of extra change in their pocket, instead of going out and spending it, saved it, brought it to the next meeting. And six months through their second cycle, they had $12,000, and Whoa. what was most spectacular about that to me was their attitude about who they were as a community had completely changed. Um, one of the things we used to hear a lot when we made the microfinance loans, we'd hear thank you a lot. What we hear now is something a lot more like, look what we've done. We didn't know <laughs> we could do this. And in that particular village, one woman told me, said, the only thing we feel bad about is we had these resources all along. We never realized it. Wow. And that was where we started to learn that the people are actually our partners in this project. They are not the project. They're the partners in this project. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, they're the ones who are restoring the land. They're the ones who are planting the trees. They're the ones who are alleviating poverty. We're blessed to get to participate in that. But yeah, they're the ones doing it.
0: And, and one of the things that was so moving for me in watching this, we were in Haiti and we, we sat in on a um, VSLA group and there was one individual, I actually talked about this yesterday in our uh, on our Sunday morning gathering, who gave toward the social fund and um, watching the dignity that... That he had in being generous was one of the most moving things. So, can you briefly tell us about what the social fund is and how it's a part of the VSLA?
1: Yeah. Well, the social fund is essentially micro insurance, right? We got micro savings through the savings group. We got micro credit through the lending. This is micro insurance, and so they they set up a small amount that they contribute in addition to the amount that they're saving that goes into the social fund, which can be used for emergencies, can be used if somebody gets sick. Um, we saw after the a couple years ago, round of hurricanes in Haiti, some of it being used to provide relief and help in in some of the villages. I was just in um, in Burundi and heard a couple of really remarkable stories. Um, in one, they'd actually set up an additional fund to reach outside the group. So they were contributing the social fund, which was their own insurance, but they'd also set up a fund. Specifically to serve the orphans in their community, who they realized couldn't be group members, so they had uh, so they had this additional fund. Um, you know, again, kind of an outcome of the spiritual renewal, realizing hey, we need to help our neighbors, and there are there are orphans, there are kids who don't have the benefit of these groups. Let's contribute to them.
0: Yeah, and that was some of what we witnessed too in Dominican Republic, where these groups. Um, recognizing that they could give outside of the group that they Navelka, who Corbin mentioned earlier her and her group of women talked about how they could serve their community and that's one of the things that's so beautiful is that when when I experienced plant with purpose it was not just hey we're going to plant trees but there really was there was economic empowerment there was a uh, obviously the environmental effort and, and the reforestation really the um the renewal um was such a beautiful thing to watch but then to see how deeply rooted and connected uh humans are and and their story and who they are as image bearers and the renewal that happened there was far and away the most exciting thing uh that i was able to witness and i was so grateful to be a part of it and thankful that corbin invited me um for those who are listening if they want to learn more get involved uh give toward donate toward plant with purpose how do they do that
2: Yeah. So, uh, our website is a really great resource. <laughs> you b-
0: you the both time. waited to talk and then you started talking at the same time.
2: <laughs> so, uh, plant is our website. Um, that's a really great place to, uh, to start. Uh, that'll help you to connect with, with, um, more specifics. You, I mean, you can learn about the countries that we work in we've mentioned that we work uh, in eight countries with 35,000 families and, um, and so that's a good place. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Plant W um, There's also uh, a podcast that we have uh, called Grassroots. And uh, I'd really encourage um, your listeners to check that out. We just finished our first season and uh, really dive into issues of economic injustice globally and locally, mm. uh, environmental degradation. We interview people. Uh, families in Appalachia, um, here in the United States that are experiencing, uh, the connection between environmental degradation and economic poverty. Um, lots of interesting, uh, folks that we've been able to interview on that, on that podcast. And, um, so definitely encourage people to check out Grassroots.
0: For sure. And, and they can... Uh, find learn more about both of you online at plantwithpurpose dot org as well, and and Scott, your book is available there, or is it available anywhere books are sold?
1: Um, well, Amazon, which I think is everywhere that books are sold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Perfect. And the name of that book is called Tending to Eden. And um, for those of you who are listening, I cannot recommend um, this organization highly enough. Having having experienced it firsthand, having learned so much about the work that they do, having literally had the pleasure of getting my hands dirty alongside local farmers in Dominican Republic and Haiti, uh, I highly encourage you to, to check them out, to learn more about what they do. And if you feel led to practice generosity and donate toward The work that they're doing around the world. And so friends, thank you so much for being here on the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank
1: you, Michael.
0: I am thrilled for those of you who are listening that you were able to learn just a little bit about Plant With Purpose. And again, you can go to plantwithpurpose.org to learn more about them. That is it for today. And so once again, I want to say thank you for joining with us here on the Changing Faith Podcast. And until next time,
1: as always, much love. And peace be with you.